The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, so seeing for yourself, um, as you, as the Buddha said, and as hopefully as you were sort of observing come and go during the lunch break, um, what have people observed about self-arising and the properties, the nature of self, both during the meditation that Rick was leading just prior to lunch and during the lunch itself? Any thoughts? Anything show up? Yeah. Well, I think that what I saw was um, when when I wasn't paying attention to anything particularly, I didn't think about forming a self. Just was not interested in it. But whenever I began coalescing around a story I was telling, then I began to get a sense of self. And I started seeing it come into play. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then the story stopped, and then I went off, and I just went back into, you know, I guess you call it average mind or something. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, yeah, that, that seemed to be what happened. Yeah, it would show up, and then it would go away. So it would show up around telling a story. Yeah, okay. yeah. and I had to identify with it. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Not, not I didn't have to do it. I did it naturally. <coughs> just did it. Mm-hmm. So I can feel the eye coming up um, almost immediately when uh, I was in the kitchen. And I think that it comes up in the self-interest. Like I can feel it um, after the meditation, it's sort of like less eye. And I get there and I say, oh, I got to go quick to the line before someone else get in front of me to the microwave oven. So <laughs> that eye come up and, you know, I start planning and scheming, okay, how I'm going to get the food out of reach quick enough so that I'll be in line before that person come in front of me. So that kind of, I come up and then it comes up again, like uh, during lunch, I was uh, chatting with a friend, and when there is a difference in opinion, then mm. there's a feeling that this is, there's a, there's a separation. Like this is his opinion, this is my opinion. So we have story, we have drive states like hunger, and we have conflict. All those should I say self-interest rather than drive state? Well, the self-interest you were talking about, getting my hunger satisfied. I mean, getting my food to the microwave. Before uh, so someone else. Before somebody food. else. I'm hungry and I don't want to wait. You know, so, it's, so there's that there's the drive state and conflict issues you know, when your difference of opinion kind of thing shows up. No. Well, I wasn't I wasn't watching too much, but I was aware of it. And my partner was was that I ate with what she mentioned. It, and she goes, did you know he said to do that? I said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, you know, I'm feeling pretty hyper right now. So it's really hard for me to slow down. But I, I did notice that when I was using the, the pronouns and I'm and I thought then I, then I thought, well, uh. When I made a comment about, like, I use hmm. doctors for this and not for this or whatever, and I thought, okay, who's I? And then I thought, who's I? Who's talking? And then I thought, 
How am I supposed to talk? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the thing. The, the use of the pronoun, just saying I, automatically shows up. And um, <clears throat> I was actually on, the, uh, on that, uh, that functional MRI slide. One of, the, one of the spots is when people were using that pronoun. So there's a place in the brain that that sort of pops into gear when you, when you make that statement. Uh, whenever I'm talking to another person, there doesn't seem to be the uh, awareness of emptiness anymore because I'm, it takes up all the space just talking to them and listening mm. to them. That's neat. That, I mean, as, a, as, a, as a social species, and particularly as the species that evolved in a clan group where our... Uh, our status and literally our survival dependent upon interactions with other people. You know, that you can see how my, my survival becomes acutely dependent upon our interaction. You can sort of see that show up really quick. So let's talk, let's, uh, talk a little bit about the properties of self. Um, so the self is it's an object of awareness. It's not really awareness of itself. We, we've heard about, you know, the, the, we use the pronoun and show, show up. Um, the awareness of when we're in conversation, having, somebody, have, having all of a sudden I show up and kind of fill all this space as opposed to it not being there when I'm not in conversation, when I'm, when I'm dropped out. Um, it's not the awareness. And you can actually be in this interesting state of both watching the I happen and being being aware of it while being in it, so it, it's you can you can see that it is not it's actually not truly me. It's an object of something, and it's associated with the events experienced by a particular body and brain. We had four stories, five, four or five people talk, and there were four or five different experiences, all of which every one of us could probably relate to in some way, but each was in, was individual for that period of time. That was what was happening for them during that lunch break. Might have happened to me on another lunch break three weeks ago or one next month, oh, that kind of thing. The, the other thing is that the, the, the sense of self activates and deactivates as a means to the ends of, the organ, uh, the ends of that individual organism. The circuits light up to survive and then they settle back down again when the survival needs diminish. I'm going to get to that microwave. You know that kind of that kind of story, um, and then I've been I've gotten to the microwave. My food is warm. I can sit down to have lunch, and the and the sense of self uh, begins to diminish. So it's not a constant thing. It sort of fluctuates a little bit like a thermostat, or it's more like a process of selfing, rather than some kind of static, fixed, unchanging, eternal entity that's there forever and ever and ever. It's especially triggered by greed and hatred and clinging, clinging either in its type of desire or clinging in the sense of its opposite, which is aversion. And so to notice how desire creates selfing is a kind of a critical piece to note that self shows up when we need something or when we think we need something, when we want something. Um, It's variable. It's inconstant. It's impermanent. It's not to be relied on. It's made up of parts. Uh, it's compounded. The self shows up as a part of conversation, or the self shows up as a part of 
of the use of a a pronoun when I'm when I'm discussing something, or the self shows up in terms of uh, a story. It's it's put together for the purposes of that task, and then once that task is accomplished, it dissipates, begins to dissolve away again, and ultimately it's linked to this sense of tension and contraction, and basically dukkha, suffering. That, that, that shows up when we coalesce around, around this idea of me, myself, mine, I as something eternal and completely to be relied on. So I think that's really kind of neat to see all of that show up just in having lunch. And so now, with my trust... There we go. It worked. You've seen this picture before. This is your brain on self. All right. If you look kind of at your slide, there basically are, are crosses, squares, and diamonds. And I forget which is which. Um, uh, this will be one of the papers that's going to be posted on our, um, our website. It's called, it's got a great title, Is Self Special? And their point is no, that self is distributed throughout the whole brain. Um, Basically, uh, one of those squiggles has to do with uh, recognition of self, like using one's name or seeing a picture of, of oneself distinguished from a picture of a different person. Uh, second, uh, making a choice that requires a strong activation of, of agency or willfulness. And then third, a personal memory, personal story. All right. So those are the different things. And the point is that... The, those functions and variations on those functions are widely distributed in the brain. <clears throat> so they're distributed. This means, by the way, that reducing self-oriented or self-referencing mental activity is a nice way to quiet the brain down generally and help it move more and more into that quiet that is a prelude for the deeper states of meditative absorption. Or if you just feel like your brain is too overheated, one way to dial down the thermostat is to start relaxing that sense of self and start absorb, observing uh, when it's um, unnecessary. Uh, one way to do that is, as she alluded to, is to be attentive to the use of the personal pronoun. It's very interesting how often the word I or my uh, is actually not necessary to convey meaning. Uh, I have grown attentive to that in emails. Like I could have said, my emails. See? But you know, it's a very interesting thing to just observe the degree to which self is constructed. It's amplified and then deactivated. Okay. Uh, now, the neural structures that support self in its various manifestations, and we'll get into uh, some of those a little bit later on. If you think of itself... Um, basically has two fundamental manifestations, uh, identification and ownership. Uh, that's in the Dharma and agency, those three. Identification, ownership, and agency. Those are the three kind of hallmark qualities of self. Um, one thing to realize, of course, is that the neural structures that support that occurring are as physically real as the neural structures that support uh, the image of a rose or a memory of when you were in some camp when you were a kid. Right? or the knowledge that one plus one is two. In that sense, self is real. In that sense, self is real. It's a pattern. It's as real as a standing wave in the river. As the water streams over the stone, 
the pattern persists, but the content of the pattern uh, shifts over time and it's conditioned. It's based on a whole set of conditions. And when those conditions, when the bottom falls out of those conditions, you know, when the trap door opens out beneath your feet, then the conditions that maintain and enable self uh, disappear and so does self itself. The point here is not that self is unreal. Sometimes people misconstrue anatta, uh, to, which is the, the Buddha's radical critique, one of his, one of his major um, creative breakthroughs really was the doctrine of not-self. Uh, at his time, the Jains and others that taught contemporaneously with him were real clear about suffering. And they were real clear about practice, they were real clear about samadhis and other non-ordinary states of awareness. But this doctrine of not-self and um, the emptiness of all the aggregates, in other words, their compounded, dependently originating nature, that was a radical teaching for his time. So a lot of the Dharma is about him working with that theme in the face of people who travel miles and miles to take down the Buddha. You know, that's a lot of the Dharma is that kind of dialogue, kind of like Dharma combat. Anyway, the point is not that it doesn't exist or that it's not real. The point is its nature as a real thing is empty of inherent existence because it's compounded and um, impermanent and saturated with suffering, particularly if one clings to it. The question isn't, is it real or not? The question is, what's the nature of the self? And by understanding that nature, how does that help you? How does that move you forward? So if we look at the properties of self in the brain, they map to the properties of self as it's experienced. Impermanence, right there. Here we go. Change, here we go. Okay, so self functions are distributed. Like I said, self is real like any other pattern, but no more than that. Um, The fundamental response of self, if you observe the aggregates, so you know the five aggregates form, which is the whole material universe and the barest um, experiencing of it, that's the form aggregate. Then comes the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, very driven by the amygdala that has to help uh, every organism make a fundamental survival decision, approach the pleasant, you know, run away from or fight the unpleasant, and kind of ignore and move on from the neutral. Approach avoid, primary, most important decision an, an organism makes, dozens of times a day in the wild, is whether to approach or avoid. Um, and you know, the brain, the brain circuitry that uh, helps uh, us do that well is really deeply wired because that's very central to suffering. The circuitry that does that in in our brain is, um, you know, close to that in a lizard brain, which doesn't have the emotional system overlay, but um, is very, very ancient. goes all the way back to the earliest mammals. And so anyway, that's the feeling tone. Okay. Then uh, Then comes perception. What is the thing? Then... The formations, that's the fourth aggregate, all the other thoughts and feelings and desires and memories and so forth, and consciousness itself. Where self starts to come up is in the, is in the aggregates, in the formations. It's a response you can watch in your own experience, especially to the feeling tone. In other words, if you kind of watch your own mind, like in meditation we can do that, or generally in life, you'll watch there'll be the registration of something 
then a kind of rudimentary feeling tone of it, then maybe a labeling, and then wrapped around that about three quarters of a second to one and a half seconds after that came in, self, you know, identification, me. You could see it kind of added to it. And you can see how that happens, you know, in terms of the processes of the brain itself. So that's why actually um, being aware of the neutral is a doorway to selflessness. Because if self activates a lot around strong, pleasurable desire or strong threat, in other words, strong approach, uh, strong pleasant or strong unpleasant avoidance, Self really lives there because that's where it has a strong reproductive benefit um, in terms of evolution, passing on the genes and so forth. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. If you attend more and more to the neutral feeling tone, what kind of my primary teacher, Christina Feldman, calls the doorway to the eventless. Isn't that a lovely word for the unconditioned? You know, the eventless as the neutral. And... Um, that, that is a great um, way to undermine and diminish and relax the sense of self, attending to the neutral. That's a wonderful meditative practice, to attend to the neutral. The other thing is why equanimity is so central in Dharma practice. Equanimity, if you recall, the key links in the chain of dependent origination goes contact, that's basically that kind of form and you know, the basic sense of things. Then comes the feeling tone, then comes craving, clinging, suffering. That right there is a phenomenal opportunity to snip the chain of suffering with equanimity. Where there is a feeling to It's pleasant or unpleasant. There's no doubt that an arahant can experience pain, can experience the unpleasant, or the pleasant of a delicious flavor or a beautiful sight. The question is, what's the response to the pleasant or the unpleasant? And equanimity, calm, is about not having reactions. There's not much pleasant, not much unpleasant. We're just really calm. Equanimity is not reacting to the reactions. So equanimity is much more powerful. You can use it under any conditions. And so if we can develop more equanimity, we undermine the ground of selfing. Because you don't need self when you have this kind of equanimity shock absorber. You know, between you and the feeling tones based in response to the world. Make sense so far? It's pretty cool, right? It's like, and they kind of go together. When there's less selfing, there's more equanimity. Uh, When there's more equanimity, there's less selfing. They kind of go round and round. You know, self both drives um, suffering and it becomes a kind of response to it but we can undermine it in both places. So any comments, questions so far? Um, Can you address self-destructive behavior? Um, For example, uh, techniques to um, reduce, um, they call it uh, suicide, but it's really pain-aside, where... um, Individuals have um, self-destructive behavior. Um, they just want to reduce the pain. Are, are there techniques that you could recommend if they detach from themselves? You know, it's funny. It reminds me of a um, kind of a um, 
a uh, groundbreaking book on on suicide, um, just to call it that for the moment, uh, called A Savage God. And it really captures some feeling of this, a savage God. Uh, The short answer answer is that anything that helps undermine the conditions that would lead a person to feel that their least bad opportunity is to jump off the bridge is going to reduce the likelihood of the person jumping or pulling the trigger or, you know, swallowing the whole bottle, etc. And so, um, while the Dharma is clearly not in a Western model of psychological treatment or self, you know, um, kind of, in some sense, it's about self-improvement. While it's not directed at depression, there's a lot there. I mean, for example, right now they're doing studies on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression. Uh, you know, uh, people psychopathologically of a high suicide rate are borderlines. People with a borderline personality disorder. Marsha Linehan's wonderful dialectical-based, you know, behavior therapy um, is really deeply grounded in mindfulness practices. Mm-hmm. I would say that. The second one, just I'll say this too, and then t- turn it over to you. The other thing is, very often people who want to die feel like their self is corrupted, deformed, tainted, ir- irrevocably tainted. Um, polluted, sometimes based on a trauma history in which uh, they came to feel that they themselves were unclean in some ways. Perhaps uh, I've had clients like that. And um, I think that there the Dharma is also very helpful because if there's less self, you know, if you, if, how can I put it, it's both um, horrifying and wonderful to realize that you're not important. You know? It's like you're not important. You really aren't. And also that there's no ultimate glorification of self. You cannot perfect the self. It's like polishing lard. It just doesn't polish. It doesn't take a shine. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work. You can't perfect the self. And uh, it just... So when people kind of give up that project, I speak somewhat personally here, giving up the project of perfecting the self, finally, you know, glorifying the narcissistic self. When you kind of give up about it, it's, it's depressing until you kind of relax and go, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> what a relief. That's one thing I, I think also that's worth reflecting on. Yeah. The, the, the only other, uh, Rick had gave an excellent answer to that. The only thing I would add, uh, the only thing I would add to that would be uh, John Kabat-Zinn's work on mindfulness-based stress reduction. And the reason that I bring that up is that's actually very specifically directed against pain. Um, and his work was started at Harvard on people who could not have their pain alleviated by any of the standard medical means and then to be able to just basically just sit with the pain and be able to, to work with it and live with it. Uh, and their entire mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, several available in the Bay Area. Uh, it's John Cabot Zinn, uh, K-A-B-A-T-T-Z-I-N-N. And the book, the book is called Full Catastrophe Living. Goes with the Savage God. I had one more comment. Um, you know, it goes back to my own experience as a therapist, uh, working with people uh, on the edge. And if you think about what's practice really boiled down to, it boils down to three things. 
it boils down to being able to be with what arises. That's the mindfulness side. It also boils down to being able to work with what arises. That's the cultivation part of practice. That's the right effort part of practice, where we are trying to cultivate the causes of the arising of the good and cultivate the causes of the abandonment of the bad, you know, loosely defined. So being with and working with. But there's a third part of practice that's also profoundly important. You see it more explicit in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism, you know, Tibetan and Zen and Pure Land. But it's the part where one takes refuge in a felt sense of the always already present true nature, which we're trying to, we were getting at in this idea of the open space of awareness. That's embedded in the Theravadan line, but it's less explicit. And it's this notion that um, underneath everything, our good personality and our, you know, our bad parts uh, is a well of being, a ground of being that's, you know, mysterious. Uh, minimally, it's embedded in the nervous system. Perhaps it partakes of something transcendental, but it has these fundamental underlying qualities. And the people that have gone the farthest in human history across widely disparate traditions, Christian mystics, uh, Jewish rabbis, Native American shamans, uh, you know, Buddhist um, ajans and, and um, abbots and whatnot, etc., etc. People have gone the farthest out there or in there or down there or up there all say the same thing. They all bring back the same report, right, from the farthest frontier. They all say who you really are, who we really are, is wonderful. It's good. It's good news. You know, and that's what's underneath this fundamental sense of the damaged self and the rotten life and the hopeless prospect. This fundamental idea that uh, what's always already true is that the fundamental ground is good. And that is very deep in the Dharma. And that's, I think, a wonderful uh, refuge for people to have a growing sense of that that they can go to. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'll just make the segue. So if we could, the segue here, we're going to talk about, sounds like you're probably going to be necessary to push that button for me. How about it? Why don't you push the down button or then there we go, it worked, see? Anyway, so I'm going to talk here about how, so where is the self? How did the self arise? And if the, you know, the Buddha goes to great lengths to uh, explain how things come to be. Because uh, if you understand how a thing comes to be, you can understand what to do about it. And it gives you a kind of perspective about it. So we thought we would take a, a swing here for the fences and go through, okay, how in the world... Does a self, well, how do you go from primordial slime? <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the earliest uh, little multicellular organisms, in other words, who had, because they had multiple cells, they had to separate their sensory apparatuses from their motor apparatuses, and they needed a method of communicating between the two, thus the origins of the nervous system. All right. So how in the world do you go from some little multicelled sponge in the bottom of the sea 650 million years ago to uh, Woody Allen today. You know, self-conscious, self-preoccupied. <laughs> Good man. 
I liked Barcelona. Was it something Christina Barcelona? Yeah. My wife really liked that movie. I thought it was good. She thought it was great. Okay. So here we go. So we want to do It's actually pretty straightforward, but we want to do it in numbers because it's kind of weird. What I noticed myself when I worked through it, I mean, I wrote this, so I had to understand it. But when I go through it, actually, I don't always understand it until I really, really concentrate. But what I do get going through it is a sense of the plausibility of the links. And somehow that, so I invite you to kind of orient a lot to it if you want that way. So in the very beginning, what do we have? We have an organism has to represent the state of its body. Because if it cannot represent the state of its body, it can't put in correction. Organisms are dynamic systems that stay healthy when they maintain an equilibrium. An equilibrium that's defined in really in three ways. It's grounded around a central resting state that it oscillates around. Its oscillations are kind of smooth and not chaotic, and it stays within range. All right? Whenever that organism goes out of range, based on different things that happen in life, it starts to suffer. And it needs a signal of suffering so it can put in corrective action. Very central. But if you can't represent your own state as an earthworm or a sponge or a crab, you can't put in corrective action. So you have to have basic representations. Level two, and those representations, you could say, comprise the experience of the organism. Okay, we're not yet up into conscious human awareness of experience, but we're talking about what's actually happening in the flow of information in the organism. Step two, with rudimentary memory functions, you start, the organism starts registering its own history. So it starts becoming able to learn from experience. You can train an earthworm to turn left at the junction in a path rather than right to avoid an electrical shock if it turns right. Okay. That's a kind of learning that, you know, moments of experience that went left, got, you know, felt good. Moments of experience that went right <laughs> felt bad. Okay. So now we have a, a trained worm. All right. That's the history of the organism. Then we have um, what's embedded, number three, in each one of those representations is an implicit representation of the body itself. It's, it's this body here that's having that experience. Okay? It's a particular body. It's localized over here. So now we're getting an increasing localization, which sounds like the foundation of identification. Right? Four, we have a continuity of um, localizations of experience over time. Just like dot, 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 point, 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 makes a line, there starts feeling like there's a kind of continuity of personal history over time. That's the fourth step. We're slowly building up the components of self. Uh, Fifth, um, these representations form a kind of architecture. I don't know how many of you have read a really good book called The Feeling of uh, What Happens by Antonio Damasio. And he talks about how in the nervous system there's this representations of representations. In other words, level one, the organism is just representing its state now, 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 now. Level two represents those representations and can form a kind of history of what the organism's experience is. So you have layers of layers of layers of layers. Have you ever noticed that you're able to think about your thoughts about thinking about yourself, right? It's, it's kind of like layer of layer of layer. So there's this architecture 
going up. Um, these references get cross-referenced, they get indexed, and the common features across them, the invariants across all these changing moments of life, become increasingly localized to a particular body, a crab, a worm, a lizard, a squirrel. Okay, so number six, what we have then is we have a stability of a particular set of invariant embodied representations of experience localized here against a world of changes. Right? This is stable, that's changing. Have you ever been in a car wash where you're sitting inside and the things move back and you have this weird feeling that suddenly you're going forward even though the car's in park? Right? It's the contrast between stable figure and moving ground or moving ground and figure you know, that gives us a sense of things moving. Okay. So therefore we have a kind of specific physical identity by number six distinct from the world. World changes, I stay the same. Ever get that feeling that I'm, I'm me today even though things have changed including this body, darn it, has some gray hair, you know, like that? Okay. Number seven, this representation really supports goal-directed survival-promoting you know, activities. Because if we are real clear as a crab or a squirrel that I'm here and the world is there, it gives us a kind of platform to launch from out into the world. If you don't have a stable platform, if the sense of uh, self is loosey-goosey, it's hard to jump, right? If you want to do a complex dive, you want to have a stable diving platform or a diving board that just predictably moves in one way. Right? Same thing in going out into the world. All right. Number eight, very interestingly, as you start moving up the ladder, it looks like organisms, especially mammals, you start moving into mammals and the more complex mammals, start being able to represent their own states of mind or actually the states of mind of other members of their species. For example, interestingly, rats will um, respond to the pain of other rats if they're friendly with the other rat. But they won't respond to the pain of the other rat if they're not friendly. By the way, this is most pronounced in male rats. That distinction between friend and foe, got to admit it. But uh, anyway, so obviously this little rat, our little rat buddy, right? How big is that brain? I don't know, about the size of an almond maybe. A little, probably smaller actually. Um, that rat brain can represent in a rudimentary sense the experience in the brain of another rat, in the mind of another rat really. Okay, so there's a representation of mental states. So now what do we start having? We start having an association of representations of mental states and physical states and world. You know, all starting to come together. And... Um, the ability to represent states of mind and have states of mind become goals. You know, one of the really interesting things for a child in, ch in child development and parenting is having the child start to appreciate, helping the child begin to appreciate certain states of mind as positive ones because they have rewards. Like that adolescent over there we were t talking about meditating, right? One of the key things is to discern, as the Buddha said, you know, a wise person gives up a lesser pleasure for a greater one. You know, you want to help that adolescent or that three-year-old or that 55-year-old today come to a, appreciate that um, peaceful, loving mellowness is actually a greater pleasure than inebriated, angry quarrelsomeness or something. Right? Even though, man, inebriated quarrelsomeness has its payoff in the moment, does it not? 
but it's a lesser pleasure. So it's the giving up of a lesser one for a greater one. Okay. And being able to represent states of mind is critical to that. Okay, number nine. Um, uh, these mental states get linked to body states. So now we have a unique physical and mental identity distinct from the world that is the locus of, of a history of pleasant and unpleasant experiences with embedded preferencing, of course, toward the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. And then moving on to number 10. Um, and this is, gets really interesting. If you think about it, it's the experience of experiencing. Right? In other words, the organism is experiencing things, but there's a certain background quality, is there not, to awareness itself. It has a certain sense to it. You know, you kind of experience awareness itself. So you start having a sense of an awareness associated with sensation and desire, pleasure and pain, linked to a body moving forward over time. That has a, has a history, has memories, has all kinds of personal identity, etc. And thus, self is born. Particularly in its human, complex sense. Question or comment about that? You know, this is an example, but not not in that great sense. No, yeah, the you know the Buddha didn't have modern biology. You know, if you think about it. Yeah. Anyway, maybe that's complete. But it, you know, and this is this is actually um, based on the thinking of a lot of people. Who knows exactly? But it's a way to think about the steps that really needed to happen in evolution for us to have a sense of personal identity. Okay. One person over there, then we'll move on. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, intentions. Uh, in the agency is the sense of that one is a hammer, not a nail. In other words, that one can act upon the world or act upon the way the world acts on you. And so that's intentionality, planning, uh, directedness. Um, as we'll talk about, I think, in a minute... You know, if you don't have uh, a self, it's really hard to function in the world as a, as a child. You know, people with a disturbed sense of self um, are, you know, have a psychopathology there. Uh, you know, what maybe I'll say this then turn it over to Rick, who's not going to talk about the complex self. By the way, this is the most intellectually gruesome section of the whole day. And we're only about 15 more minutes or less. Yeah, it was not smart. That was dumb. But anyway, so we're going to be, you know, but we, just, we just thought, how could we do this without going at this one? You know what I mean? We would have left it out. So we wanted to go at this one. Um, but the larger point is maybe self is like, you know, the, the metaphor in Buddhism a lot is the raft. You know, we do practices as an intermediate means to the end. But when we achieve the end, we drop the practices. We don't keep carrying the raft on our head when we cross the lake to the other side. And maybe self can be something like that. There's a place for it, but when it fulfills its functions and starts getting in our way, then we want to lay down the raft. So how do we place this? Another way to look at this is, uh, as Rick was uh, 
alluding to in the description of those ten points, sort of the evolutionary history. Um, so the brain, st- the the architecture the, that we've described here begins to show up somewhere between the reptilian and the paleomammalian. Um, for example, the with added neurologic equipment, there's added capabilities. The reptilian self, which is basically sort of an immediate reactive, where in terms of those ten points, there's not a lot of sense of history. There's not a lot of emotional connection. Uh, there's not a great deal of agency. There is act and react. Um, if you look at uh, a reptile, they really don't have a great deal of memory. I mean, yes, you can teach a earthworm to turn left or turn right based on an electric shock and a food reward, uh, but it's, there's not a whole lot of memory in the reptile's approach to the world. What happened a lot in terms of the reptilian approach to the world is the ones that made mistakes got eaten, and so there was this genetic selection, and it takes a long period of time for that to work itself out. Um, but you, but with these, as you get up into the higher area, you get things like territoriality, area of possessiveness. Okay, so now let's talk about this elemental self, which was listed, which enriched in, in ten points, gets associated in the brain with territories and possessions. The sense of self extends out beyond the individual body. So the representation of those things outside of the body, which are important to me, mine, and, and survival, begin to be attributed to self. Um, you know, you mess with, you know, the, the bird saying, you mess with my eggs, you're messing with me. You know, you get the, the bird attacking you when you're attempting to, the, to take the eggs from the nest, uh, you know, somewhere high up on the rock wall. Um, and, then perha- and then as you get neomammalian in the primate brain, you begin to get even more uh, things of where the sense of self is extended out. Um, think about an orangutan or a chimpanzee or human. Um, the really, things, really interesting things start to happen then. You just take those ten points and start start of elaborating them into into this following idea: self in relationship to mate or to other, self that's got some empathic sensing of the states of others that are distinct from one's own. We talked a little bit about how that empathic sensing of how the other is behaving is so critical to the form to the uh, the interaction in a clan species like we are. <laughs> So that functioning in a 50 to 200 person group really requires for the cohesiveness of the clan that within clan you're really sensitive to how things are going. Because maybe somebody on the, on the, on the side of the clan is seeing that the leopard's coming out from under the bush. Uh, or somebody else is noticing that, um, that this particular individual is, is, appears to be losing it and is about to destroy two or three of the small children around. Uh, you know, all of those kinds of things get sensed as we as as this evolves into clan clan behavior. Um, and then rep- these representations of personal identity, kind of self concept, self known to itself, starts to show up in higher mammals, especially primates. Uh, there's really good literature showing, for example, that uh, that primates such as orang- as orangutans. Um, Gorillas, chimpanzees are able to recognize themselves in a mirror or themselves on a TV screen so that they can make essentially an attribution of that is me. 
the, over there doing an action. That requires the neural architecture, which is actually up in the neocortex of the brain, to be able to do that. Any other question? Um, the way this uh, representation has been kind of built up implies, when you get to this point, that um, uh, the sense of self and the higher sense of self is related to empathy. And you know, mm-hmm. I, so I see it linked there as something important. And you've given tales of you know the campfire sure. and so forth. In a, you know, I, I would think from what I've studied of Buddhism that. What's often said is that compassion is is available when there's less self, um, and that it's somehow more related to relaxing the sense of self and the the need for survival. That's when the compassion comes forth. Right. And people who meditate for a long time feel much more, much deeper love, having less self. Let's start. Let me let me start two things. First first piece on the empathy, and the second on extending the compassion. In terms of these higher order self that I'm talking about, um, that is that essential. That essentially does require a, a, the empathy neurons. Now, the me- the mechanism of empathy we think we think uh, uh, at this point is having to do with the structures called the mirror neuron systems, which largely live in the insula of the brain. Now, that sounds the insula is this interesting thing, but you, you remember in pictures of the brain you get this sort of ram's horn effect of the cortex going around. And there's a big fissure in here called the, uh, the sylvian fissure. Um, and that defines the frontal and parietal lobes from the temporal lobe. Inside that fissure, the cortex actually goes in and then folds around on itself so that there's some cortex that's on the inside. It's way in from the outside surface of the brain. And that's called the insular cortex. That has in, it, in, in its nature is the, is the monitoring, the cortical representation of internal body states, my gut feelings. The cortex representation of my gut feelings shows up there. About 10% of those neurons in, in the insula and in other areas of the brain light up not only when I feel like that, but when I sense Rick feels like that. When I see the physiognomy of somebody in rage or somebody even in minor irritation, the 10% of those those neurons that are involved in my sense of when I'm feeling minorly irritated, they light up when I see that in somebody else, which is what the, uh, the concept of mirror neurons. Now, you can see evolutionarily how easy that is to show up. If you have a species that requires knowledge about the state of the other in order to uh, further the survival of the clan, then that becomes really critical, really critical to know. Um, so that's where the, the empathy piece comes in, in terms of a number of these, this higher order complex self piece. Now, the interesting thing here, if you think about the Buddhist, Buddhist sense of compassion and relaxing the sense of self, what that is, is in, in many ways, is moving from an individual body-centered self, my needs, my desires, uh, this immediate organism's uh, momentary needs, to an expansion to my clan's needs, my country's needs, my civilization's needs, my planet's needs, my universe's needs. 
sort of ex- expanding that out and bringing all as much into one's own personal sense of self as possible, then the sort of sense of same kind of care and compassion one has for oneself extends out into larger and larger populations. There's an interesting thing, which if you look at uh, meta meditation practice, it usually starts with metta for oneself, doesn't it? And then it expands out. Interestingly, if you start with meta meditation and you do it just for yourself, that's good. But if you never extend it out to, you know, myself, my sangha, my clan, my city, my country, if you don't take it all the way out, you you wind up dividing self from other. And you actually never complete the process of extending that level of compassion out to all beings, all realms. So you can see how the, 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 the Buddhist practice in itself contains within it that idea. So when the self becomes infinitely large, it might as well be infinitely small. Precisely. <coughs> a, single, a single point has infinite dimensions in that sense. Uh, part of what happened, I, I thought your question actually was very provocative right. for me and it really took me back to the drawing board here, and I think we were a little unclear, so I want to try to refine that. Um, in a social group of 50-ish or so primates who are cooperating with each other to survive, and while competing fiercely and sometimes murderously with other primate groups, you know, on the plains of Africa, uh, it it really helps to be able to uh, attribute a quality of self to, the, to another person. And you can think about, I don't know if you've ever been with someone who's really autistic, but one of the, particularly for a parent who attributes self dearly to that child, that child commonly does not attribute self to the parent. You know, one of the research now on, on autistic kids is they don't have theory of mind, and as Rick was alluding to, they tend to be deficient in the mirror neuron systems. And there are different kinds of mirror neuron systems. So um, it's an attribution of self to another person. We can have empathy without selfing. Empathy is another content of mind. It's a very benign one. It's a wonderful one. It's to cultivate. But it doesn't need to be selfed to, to arise. And that, I think, goes right to your point. Uh, and in fact, arguably sometimes... Now, it is clear, though, key point, on the research on empathy, which is really interesting stuff, actually, that if a person doesn't have a capacity to differentiate the state of mind over there from the state of mind over here, you can't be empathic. If there's too much blurring of the boundaries between over here and over there, notice I'm absorb, avoiding the language itself as much as I can, if there's not a fairly good boundary there, a distinction... It just gets all blurry and you can't be with what's over there. In fact, what often will happen is you're so flooded with what's over there that you can't be present with what's over there. Arguably, people who are distancing and avoiding in relationship are that way because they're so sensitive and wide open and impacted by other people. Paradoxically, it's not because they're cold and stony. It's because they're so affected. You know, It's because he loves you so much because you're so important to him that he backs away. I gendered that deliberately because that's often how it goes down, right, in a heterosexual couple. Uh, so. so on that note, let's take a break. And then we'll come back and 
We'll take the body for a walk without a self, perhaps. So how about a 10-minute break? How about a 12-minute break? 20 after 2, okay?